Who here today would have the courage, nay, the audacity, to stand up in front of your family or friends, maybe here today, or um, at school in front of your classmates or team, or at work on Monday in front of your coworkers or your boss? Who would have the audacity to stand up and publicly rebuff the idea, the whole concept, the value of being a servant? or a servant leader? The answer is no one. Even if you don't personally love the idea of being a servant, none of us would ever say that out loud, much like those of you who are rooting for the Rams uh, next week. You just don't say it out loud, right? Um, And yet what's weird about that is in the ancient world, if you ask the same sort of question, universally the answer would be no. No one wants to be a servant. Why, why would you want to be a servant? Servants have no freedom. They have no choices. It's far better to have servants than to be a servant. And, and this began to change. I mean, this was the way things were for thousands of years. And this began to change about 2,000 years ago, all because of the teachings of Jesus and his followers. Stuff like this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, and here's the mindset, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Or in First Peter it says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received, not to serve yourselves or to further your own you know, destiny or advantage, but to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Or Peter says it there, but Paul says it here. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. So uh, you're not indentured servants in the way that you have no freedom or you have no choices. We have freedom. But here's what he says. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And because of teachings like this, because of the example in the life of Jesus, starting 2,000 years ago, the mindset about servanthood started shifting in our world and service to others went from being a thing that was shameful to something that was admirable. And so here we are today. And uh, even though even though maybe we have some conflict sometimes in real moments about whether or not we want to serve or not, we, we all know it's a good thing. But the question I want to ask today about service, because that's what we're talking about, is can you ever have too much of a good thing? Perhaps so. And maybe you've seen this play out. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. It all starts innocently enough. Uh, In your life, there are moments where someone needs help. Maybe you spot a need or maybe they straight up ask you to help them. And, uh, and if you're willing to step up and help them with that need, here's what you'll discover. It feels really great, doesn't it? To help someone else out. Can I discover like, wow, this, is, this, is, this doesn't make sense, but being inconvenienced for the sake of someone else, that feels really good. Not only that, but you might discover that, that they feel lighter, they feel better, they feel positively toward you, and it's kind of this, this magical thing that happens when you serve someone. See, see, here's what we discover the first time we serve someone. You like it when I help you. You like me when I help you. And helping you gives me value. Isn't that true? You ever help someone? These things are true, right? 
Uh, usually when you're helping someone, they, they tend to like it. Not only do they like it, they like you, and you walk away with a sense of value. Wow, that was really great. I was able to use this gift or this expertise or the time that I have to help someone else. True? Come on. True? Okay, it's true for like 10 of you. The rest of you should try serving. We have volunteer spots for you. Um, <laughs> So, so here's what happens if, if you do this, you know, it's great, it's a great thing, and then you do this again, and you do this again, and if you're not careful, this is what this becomes. This turns into this. You don't like it when I can't help you, and if I can't help you, then you won't like me, and if I can't help you, I have no value. Isn't that tricky? But for so many of us who, um, as we're going to talk about today, find ourselves walking the path of service, this is where things ultimately end up. It goes from that place of, wow, this is great, and, and you like it, and I like it, and I feel great, and it was great to find a, a sense of value. It goes to this thing where we require, we need to be needed in order to find a sense of value or place in the world. It can get way, way out of hand. Case in point, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the show The Goldbergs. Um, if not, I want to introduce you today to Beverly Goldberg. She's a mother of three, and she is someone who has gotten, over the course of her life, a little overzealous for serving. I, I'm going to show you a video clip of her, but before I do, I just want to warn you, there are some mentions of undergarments here, so if that makes you uncomfortable, you can close your eyes and ears for the next 30 seconds. Take a look. This is my mom, Beverly Goldberg, a shoulder-padded, crunchy-haired mother warrior whose top priority was always her kids. Before helicopter moms and attachment parenting, she was the original smother. Smuggle bog. Circular motions. We've had this discussion. Just give it to me. See? Feel that difference? Make a bunny face. She was all over us from early in the morning to late at night. Who wants a sleepover snack? <laughs> First one to fall asleep gets their bra frozen. Why are you in here? She even found a way to smother us at school. Mom, don't mind me. Soccer tryouts are this afternoon. You need that to protect your special spot. I know what it's for. Just leave. Little overzealous, right? And and uh, maybe in life you know people who are like that. They, they, they've gotten hooked on the path of service, or maybe it's better off to say that the path of service has gotten its hooks into them. And, and so it becomes this whole thing where, where they, uh, they, they need to be needed. And, and, and you know, for me, I, I understand this. I entered a service profession. That's what I do with my life. It's all about serving other people. And, and so I know this delicate dance of knowing that service is a good thing. It's something God calls us to, but knowing that it can get unhealthy really, really quickly. And I've seen this with so many of my colleagues in particular, people who have, have gotten hooked on being needed. They need to be needed. And, and now they go through life and they're killing themselves and they're killing their families because every person who's in need, they feel like they have to serve them. And it becomes something that once was this great value, this, this thing that can make all of our lives richer, that can make the world better, and it becomes something that is, is horribly unhealthy. See, today as we talk about living life on the path of service, again, it's a good thing. And yet, like all of the paths that we're talking about, we can find ourselves trapped, we can find ourselves stuck, we can find ourselves going to very unhealthy places. And here's the thing. If, if you walk the path of service for a while, maybe you'll identify with some of these things. You'd never say these things out loud, um, but maybe these are things that you kind of know deep down. That on the path of service, I don't have as many needs as other people, so it's easier to sacrifice my own needs for theirs. 
Um, we all know people, or maybe in our lives we've experienced moments where we think, you know, I'm just, I'm just not as needy as other people in my life. And so it's just easier for me to focus on your needs. You have more needs, and so I just, I'll be helpful to you because I don't have many needs. But the key word here is this word sacrifice. When you're on the path of service, you are very well aware of the sacrifices involved to serve someone else. And truth be told, you would really like it if they would also be aware of the sacrifices involved with you serving them. Second, on the path of service, my help is a way to create indispensability. In life and relationships, we all look for ways that, that we can be assured of our value, that we can be irreplaceable. And for some of us, creating a system where people are dependent on us, where they need us, they can't survive without us, whether it's to brush our teeth or to bring us stuff at school or to bring us snacks during our sleepover, that becomes a way to guarantee that we will never be replaced. It's a way to secure our value. Or how about this? On the path of service, my help can turn into manipulation. It's not always pure, is it? It's not always genuinely for the sake of the other. Uh, It can turn into manipulation or even seduction. We can try to seduce people into liking us, loving us, valuing us, appreciating us through our service. Or what about this? On the path of service, I struggle with boundaries. (laughs) Whether that means smothering someone else, enabling someone else, or maybe that means that I don't ever feel the freedom to tell someone no. And even when I am burnt out, when I'm done, when I have nothing left to give, I don't feel like I have the permission or the freedom to say no, not just because you'll be upset with me, but because of what that might mean for me. Or on the path of service, I give to get. Now, this is tricky, but man, it's, it's true. It can go this way on the path of service that while we're giving to everyone else, we think it's for their sake, but the reality is we're expecting something in return. In fact, take a look. Ah, there was nothing quite like Thanksgiving in the Goldberg house. My mom gave it her heart and soul, and all she wanted in return was for her family to sit around the table and give thanks to her. Okay, the turkey's been basted, and the yams are marshmallowed. My job is done. Maybe it's time for you to do your jobs and spend the next few hours thinking about the thing or person that you're most thankful for. Daryl Dawkins. Harrison Ford. He's Indiana Jones, Han Solo, and, little known fact, he's a trained carpenter. He can make us a gazebo. Everyone out. Go get dressed and think about your answers while I'm here slaving away. (laughs) Right? You start off trying to do it for the sake of others, but... Secretly, there's this, this expectation, this desire, this wish that you're going to get something back again, whether it's, whether it's appreciation or admiration. Uh, when I'm on the path of service, I'm prone to swings of tenderness and aggression. Right? I want to be there for you. I'll be your greatest fan, your greatest supporter. I'll show up in your hour of need. But if, if you don't return to me, if I don't get out of it what I need to, then uh, you're going to see a whole other side of me. Um, Often on the path of service, we get very skilled at using guilt. Watch this one. After the guilt grabber, you deliver your emotionally devastating thesis, wherein you single them out as the most ungrateful child the world has ever known. Not only am I ashamed to have such a cruel, selfish son, but I may never sleep again knowing how I failed as a mother. My God, who writes this? Literally me, no joke. Next comes the body of the letter in which you present the many hurtful specifics that demonstrate how much you've sacrificed for your baby. I haven't slept since you were born and gave my whole life to you. Not once did I focus on myself. I could have been a lawyer. Again, something I actually wrote to my children. 
finally, we have the closer, where you remind your children that they and they alone are responsible for your early demise. Wow! I know, Sari Mursky. You finally have the tool to shame Emmy into being perfect, like class valedictorian Eliza Gorin. She'll never be Eliza Gorin. <laughs> Beverly, these crazy guilt letters are a game changer. Thank you for this amazing, hateful gift. You truly are a genius of our time. So nice to finally be recognized. <laughs> Quick, give me your paper. Let's not waste these. You don't have to admit if that sounds like anyone in your life, but um, this, is, this is where it can go. See, ultimately, on the path of service, if we're not careful, um, pride is our real struggle. Pride becomes a real issue, which, which, again, seems impossible. Serving is all about the other person. It's all about humbling yourself. It's not about you at all. It's, it seems like it's the opposite of pride, but if we're not careful, careful on the path of service, pride will become our real struggle because it becomes all about how people see us, how they view us. I, I love what C.S. Lewis says. I've repeated this a few times. I think it's so important on the issue of pride. He says that pride isn't thinking too much of yourself. It's thinking of yourself too much. Thinking of yourself too often, it's, it's a preoccupation with self. It's not necessarily that you have a crazy ego. In fact, some of the people who struggle with pride the most have a very low opinion of themselves, but they can't stop thinking about themselves. See, it's wild, isn't it? You start off on this path and, and, and you just want to help people. You just want to make their lives better. You see needs and you want to meet needs and it starts off pure and innocent. It starts off Christ-like, but if we're not careful... So often it can go to another place. And and here's the trap, the trap of service. The more I work to get you to like me, the more I lose myself, right? The the more I'm dedicated at, at trying to meet your needs so that you'll like me and you'll fill some need in my life, the more I lose myself. And then eventually you liking me is all I have left. See, this is where it can get ugly, and this is where when you walk the service path for long enough, you can start to get really desperate. Or in my, in my attempts to not be needy in order to meet the needs of the world, I end up being the neediest person of all, demanding that you meet my needs. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the series, maybe some of this today sounds a little bit like the Path of Harmony that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And, and to be sure, some of, the, some of the actions can be the same, but the motivation is entirely different. On the path of harmony that we talked about, I think, two weeks ago, um, the, the end all goal is to preserve harmony in your environment, to keep things tranquil and at peace and conflict free. The motivation here isn't so much that. that if you walk the path of service, you're okay with conflict. Uh, it's really so that by meeting other people's needs, your needs somehow might get met. And, and we all carry these deep needs for love and value and even people to serve our needs. And and so it becomes this backdoor way of getting our needs met. And see, usually when we're talking about these paths, as we talk about places where we get stuck, the answer to say, how do you make this healthy again, is to turn to God. It's to turn to his word, to find help there. But, But here's what's so sinister, I think, about this path. That even when you know that you're in an unhealthy place, so often when you turn to God... And instead of God, you find religion, it only deepens the problem. See, how many of us have come to church and we've heard messages like this? We've heard, we exist to give God glory, which I don't want to argue that maybe that's true, but you know what that can start to sound like? That can start to sound like that the only reason God created us is because he needed someone to give him glory. 
That he was out in the universe alone and he said, you know what's missing? No one's here to give me glory. I better create beings whose whole job is to give me glory. And we can start to imagine God as this needy being who requires our glory. Or what about this? God wants to reach the ends of the earth with his gospel, but he cannot do it without you. Again, it, it maybe sounds orthodox, but really God can't do, can God do not do anything without us? I mean, is there anything that God cannot do? And instead of saying, hey, God has this plan to reach the world and he's chosen to honor you by involving you, we turn it around and we say, he can't do it without you. He needs you. Or um, even a, there's a current Christian writer who's wildly popular and, um, and I read this quote from him the other day. He said, we belittle God when we go through the outward motions of worship and take no pleasure in his person. I'll read that again. We belittle God when we go through the outward motions of worship and take no pleasure in his person. Really? I mean, so if you come to church and you're standing there and you're singing, but you're not actually taking pleasure in the person of God, you're not delighting in the person of God, in that moment, God feels belittled because you're not worshiping him wholeheartedly? See, Christianity is a needs-based religion, but so often we get it backwards, don't we? We imagine that, that this religion is all about us meeting God's needs. And, and so if you've walked this path for a while and you turn to church, you turn to God, sometimes you find messages that reinforce everything that you believe, that if you're not needed, if, if you don't step up and serve, then you have no value in the sight of people or in the sight of God. But that's a lie. See, religion often gets it wrong. But today, um, I want to set the record straight. I want to let Paul set the record straight. Again, Paul was one of the followers of Jesus. He wrote some of those words we looked at earlier. And as Paul goes around the world teaching people about Jesus, teaching people about the true God, one day he finds himself in Athens, Greece. Now, if you did a unit in school on Greek mythology like I did way back in the day, you know that Athens was the epicenter of Greek mythology And so it's this uh, beautiful city and it's filled with all these temples, all these places to worship the Greek pantheon, all the different Greek gods. And so Paul's there on his journey and he's waiting for some friends and and he's in this place that is probably the, the most religious place on earth. And he uses his, uh, his time there as an opportunity to teach something really important about service, but also about who the true God is. Acts 17, let's look at it together. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, his, his companions in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So, so Paul's normal pattern was to go to a place and to start in the synagogues with people who were Jewish and to tell them about the Messiah who had come. And then if he had time, he would kind of talk also to the people who are not Jewish. But here in Athens, he just cannot resist because they're such a religious place, such a religious people, he can't resist spending a lot of time, not just in the synagogues, but out in the marketplaces, trying to help these religious people see God for who he really is. So he's out there in the marketplaces, and, uh, and while he's there, it says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, you know, not our gods. And the reason they said this is because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. So they're kind of making fun of him, but they're sort of interested. And, and so they take him to this, this meeting of the super smart minds of Athens, people who love to debate, uh, philosophers, religious leaders, and, and uh, it's kind of this council where they talk about all these big and lofty ideas. So they take Paul there either to hear him or to annihilate him, to make fun of him. And so he goes there, jumping ahead to verse 22. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And they are. A city filled with temples and idols and places where, where you have to worship God. And, and here's the thing that unites most world religions. That most world religions are built on the idea that we are, we are called to serve, to sacrifice, to offer propitiation to the gods. Who then by virtue of us showing them that we can serve them well, will favor us with kindness, will help us get the things that we want or need or at least won't smite us. And, and so he says, I can see you're very religious because you got all these temples. In fact, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. I mean, they're so careful about making sure they hit every God that they might know of to make sure they can keep them satisfied with their offerings and service and sacrifices and propitiation. They even make, they just like, okay, here's our stopgap. We know Zeus, we know Aphrodite. We, well, let, let's have one to an unknown God just in case we're missing anyone. We want to make sure that we keep that God happy with us too by offerings, by making service, uh, you know, worship things and, uh, you know, offerings and propitiation. And so I find this inscription to an unknown God. And so here's what he says. So you are ignorant. And he uses this in a kind way. He just means, so you don't really know. You're acknowledging you don't know fully who it is that you're worshiping by your own admission. And so this is what I'm going to proclaim to you today. I'm going to tell you about this unknown God. Here's the thing I want to say before Paul goes on that I think it's possible that some of us sit in this room and we are also ignorant. Again, I mean that in a kind way. We don't, we don't use this word in a kind way anymore, but I mean that some of us are here today and we simply do not yet know who created all of this, who is responsible for this, who, who made us. We don't understand how to give voice to the things in life that just can't be explained through natural explanations. I think there are even some of us in this room who would call ourselves Christians who believe in Jesus, and yet we still don't know God as he actually is. And so, so this is so important today. This isn't just about a history lesson about what Paul taught the people of Athens. Today, we we can be made aware of who God actually is. We can come alive with the knowledge of who God is and he is not a God who looks anything like the gods of world religions or I think even the God that is talked about in a lot of churches, Christian churches. Here's what Paul says. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and he does not live in temples built by human hands. Imagine how controversial the statement would have been in Athens. Because again, the, the Greek pantheon, all these Greek gods and goddesses, they all have their territory, the sea or the sky, the sun, the earth. But to say that there is a God who made everything in the world and he's the Lord of everything up there that we can't see, everything that we can see, that he has sovereignty or dominion over all of that, that would have been a pretty controversial idea. 
And then these are people who spend a lot of money on their temples and, and their idols. And so to say, and he doesn't live in any of these places built by human hands. This is a controversial idea. He goes on and he says, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. I just want you to let this last part soak in. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Do you understand that? Do you know this to be true? That uh, God, he doesn't need anything from you. He's not after your money or your time, your gifts, your, your service, your dedication, your prayers, your worship. He doesn't need your praise offerings. He doesn't need your prayers. He doesn't need your, he doesn't need your glory. He doesn't need any of that. He is not served by human hands. He doesn't require, he doesn't need anything from you. Do you understand that? And then here's what Paul says. It's even more important. So it's not that he's just ambivalent. He doesn't care about you. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So it's not like he's just independent and autonomous and he's separate from us. Rather, Paul says, the the dynamic is opposite. He's the one who gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He's not needy for anything from you. He's the giver. Now, Now, when you come to a church service... In your mind, who's the one who's doing the serving? It's a church service. Who's serving? See, I think so often we imagine that, that we're here to serve God. We're here to give our offerings. We're here to pray our prayers. We're here to show that we're devoted. And somehow if we do it well enough, God will love us. And, and we'll be a good Christian and we'll get into heaven someday. And you know, what does Paul say? Who's doing the serving in a church service? Rather, God is the one who himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Who's serving whom here today? We come to be served by a God who gives us everything that we need. Now, Now, for some of us, this idea is terrifying. For some of us, it's freeing. For some of us, it's terrifying because if God doesn't need me, if he doesn't need my gifts, he doesn't need my money, he doesn't need my volunteerism, he doesn't need my prayers, he doesn't need my songs. God doesn't need me. Where does that leave me? How how do I ever feel okay about a relationship? How do I ever know that I matter? How do I ever guarantee that I've, I've, I've got something to offer God so that he'll love me and walk with me? How, How do I ever get him on my side? See, I love, I love what Paul says. He, he gives himself, he himself gives everything life, everyone life and breath and everything else. And he goes on and he says, Here, here's what it's all about for God. Here's his motive. From one man, he made all the nations, you know, the nation of Israel, the nation of Greece, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that, that all people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. See, God is not ambivalent. God is not, you know, like the deists say, a God who set it all in motion and walked away and he's kind of off doing his thing and leaves us to do our thing. Paul says that God had a very specific reason for doing everything that he does. And his desire is that we would seek him, that we would perhaps reach out to him, and we would find him. And he's never far. 
Do you hear God's motive in all of this? In creating us and establishing the world? His motive in all of it is relationship. God desires to be in a relationship. He, he wants you to seek and reach out and find him. He, he longs for you to be in a relationship with himself. That's, that's all God wants. And it's not a relationship for his sake. It's a relationship for your sake. See, I love the way God puts it in Isaiah 43. Here's what he says. He says, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, see, because I love you, not because I need anything from you, not because your songs are so sweet or your obedience is so great. God says, you are precious and honored in my sight. It's not anything that you do for me. It's just who you are. And because I love you, because I've decided in my heart that I will love you, God says, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. And he's talking to Israel here and he's saying, you know, I will favor you among every other nation because you're precious and honored in my sight just because I love you, not because of anything else. I would give anything for you. And you know what? For us, even if we're not a part of Israel in the traditional way, for us, this becomes even truer. Because God takes this promise and he amplifies it in the person of his son. And he says, because you're precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give my son. I will give his life in exchange for yours. See, how can you explain what God has done in Jesus? if he's a God who's needy? How, how do you explain it? It doesn't make sense. If God is dependent on our offerings, if he's dependent on our worship, if he's dependent on our whatever else, fill in the blank. If he's dependent on us, how do you explain that in the fullness of time he offered his son in exchange for us? See, as, as Paul lays this out before the people of Athens, He's trying to get them to see that this, is, this God is unlike any God you've ever heard of. Who else serves? What other God serves people in this way? What other God loves people in this way? What other God is, goes to such great lengths to meet the needs of his people, the, the greatest needs we have for love and forgiveness and belonging and purpose? What, what other God does this? And how can you explain it other than the fact that he is a God who has decided to love you and he has declared that you are precious and honored in his sight apart from anything you could ever do for him? And you see, do you know what this means? This means that more than needing us, our God wants us. Do you know how good this is? For, for those of you who know how good it feels to be needed by someone, you're right, it does feel pretty great to be needed, but that's nothing in comparison to being wanted. And our God, he doesn't need us, he wants us. He values us for who we are. He sees something inside of us that we can't see within ourselves. He, he sees a, a value and a purpose in us that transcends anything that we could ever demonstrate or pay back to him. And, and he just loves us. Far better than being needed, our God offers us the opportunity to be wanted, to be delighted in for who we are. And he calls us into relationship not because he expects to get something out of the relationship. He's not getting anything out of his relationship with you. But he calls you into relationship 
because of what he can offer you, the things that only he can offer you. And so Paul says, that's what makes God, the father of Jesus, so different from any other statue or temple in Athens. Today, I want to ask you, is this the God that you know, a God who requires nothing of you, but a God who deeply desires relationship with you? See, if so, if, if you can grab on to this whole um, reality of being wanted more than being needed, first with God, then with others, then what can begin to happen in your relationships is that you can take a step away from all of those people in your life that you've created to be need monsters to guarantee your indispensability to make sure that you'll always have a place or a value. You, You can begin to step away from all of that and you can discover that you have value apart from anything that you do or the value that anyone else can give you because of how you serve them. And, and, and if you can get this right, if you can just understand how good it is to be wanted and, and the reality that those people in your life who you've created to be need monsters, in the reality, in the, in the end, they probably just wanted you anyway. They didn't need you. They wanted you and, and you got that confused and you thought they needed you and so you keep up this whole thing of trying to meet all of their needs or create needs so that you can meet them. And, and the reality of most of our relationships is that we are enough to simply be wanted. And, and if you can do this, if, if you can get this right, and it starts first with God, and then it goes to all the rest of your relationships, that's your path forward to growth. That's how you escape the trap that service often uh, leads us into. You might even have a bevolution. What you doing? You were right. I'm always trying to stop the kids from changing, stop everything from changing, but... Now I realize that's impossible. It's time for me to change, too. So the visit's over? I mean, it just felt so fast. Well, we have a few minutes right now. Let's make the most of it. Kids, I need to talk to you. Jeff, get out. You know, I don't mind staying. Sometimes I kind of feel like I'm part of the family. Okay. Mom, don't even start. I get enough lectures at school. It's not a lecture. It's an apology. I've done a few questionable things to keep you kids close to me. A few? I've done a ton of questionable things, but no more. You kids are changing. There's, there's no reason I can't, too. It's time for an evolution. A evolution. That sounds expensive. Oh, it will be. But it's something I want to do. What do you say? Sometimes the toughest decisions in life end up giving us the best results. I say it's really awesome, and I'm proud of you. And we come to appreciate our family for who they really are and who they help us become. See, when you can trade in the need to be needed and instead discover the joy of being wanted, man, that's your freedom. And not only that, but then, then you can go back and And you can do all the things that Jesus called you to do. You can serve and you can love and you can do it without strings attached. You can do it without manipulation. You can do it for others, genuinely other-centered, not for yourself. And then, and then, and only then, you can begin to serve just like Jesus. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you for giving us everything 
Thank you for not requiring anything of us. God, for those of us in this room today who, um, who think, or those of us online too, those of us who think that we have to prove ourselves valuable to others by uh, our acts of service, and that apart from those things, we have no value. Um, just, just destroy that idea inside of us today. That we would begin to see our value, our worth, apart from what we do. That we would truly understand what it is, what it means that you want us, that you delight in us. And that from there, we would become healthy servants, just like your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.